This episode is sponsored by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV with a special offer for you. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout for 30% off all plans. Welcome to Heavy Networking, the flagship podcast of the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, coming to you every week since May 2010. If you know the difference between a switch and a router, prefer to say 802.11ac to Wi-Fi 5, hold strong opinions about IPv6, or have a scar from where the cage nut made you bleed, hey, you have found your tribe. And on today's episode, Kevin Myers joins us for a white box conversation. Kevin helps internet service providers build their networks and has noticed increased adoption of the white box switching model among the ISPs that he works with. Well, why? Why white box for these folks? And are the problems white box solves for these ISPs problems that you might have at your company? Should you be considering white box instead of, say, Cisco Juniper or Arista? Maybe. And maybe not. So cap that thin net with a 50-ohm terminator so you don't miss a single packet of the data networking goodness flowing into your earbuds, because here we go. Kevin, welcome back to Heavy Networking. Now, you're, you're not new to the pod, but would you tell the folks who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me back. And first of all, I do have strong opinions on IPv6, but that's not this show, so we'll skip those. Um, my name is Kevin Myers. I'm a senior network architect uh, with IP Architects, which is a consulting company that I co-founded, which is a, essentially an independent consulting company. So we spend a lot of time in the white box space, in the commodity networking space. Ethan and I did a show on Microtik, which is kind of a commodity vendor that we did recently, and that's there a little bit in this in this space. And so that's where I spend most of my time. A lot of it is with service providers, um, but we do do some data center and enterprise work as well, typically integrating you know, these, these kinds of solutions into, into networks all over the world. So that's, that's what I do with my day. So Kevin, for purposes of this conversation, would you define white box? I would say white box is, in its simplest form, it's, it's, it's a very generic answer that you've probably heard before, but it really is the separation of software and hardware. Um, if you've never looked at white box or heard about white box, it's, you know, it's been a popular topic here on packet pushers for a long, long time. And I think going back probably 10 years or more, if I remember right, we've been talking yeah, about yeah. this idea and it was, it was really, you know, it was really hot and then it got kind of, kind of cold, but we, what we defined then in 10 years ago, I think is relevant now, which is I'm going to separate my software and my hardware into separate components, just like we did with servers 20, 30 years ago. And we said, oh, I, I can take an IBM mainframe and I, I don't have to buy the OS in the mainframe from IBM. I could buy an x86 server and put Linux on it or put Windows on it. And it's the same in networking. You have a box that needs an operating system. And because Cisco is you know, probably the most prominent vendor that we've all dealt with you know, in the arc of, of network engineering that we've all been through, for those of us that have you know, been around it a few decades, we're all used to going to, you know, to, to Cisco or to that big vendor to go get that box and that OS. And Whitebox gives you a way to separate those components if you have a compelling reason to do so, which, you know, which are, you know, cost, features, use case, availability, you know, all of which I suspect we're going to get into. Oh, yeah, we will. Uh, it's funny that you said it was really hot, like a lot of conversations, and then it really wasn't. And now it's kind of, you know, I, I think it's followed the hype cycle, right? Where it was like really hot because of the promise of, oh, white box, man, it's going to change the industry. It's going to change. It's going to change everything. And then we got into that trough of disillusionment where it's like, white box is sort of hard. And then we got to change our operational model. And uh, I don't know. And, you know, now we're in that, you know, point of, uh, of this is the reality of it. Kind of the, I don't know that it's matured technology as such, but 
But there's challenges to it in my mind, Kevin, in that it, I think it proved to be harder to build effective abstraction layers above the different hardware platforms, which is maybe why we had vertically integrated stuff to begin with and would buy it from a big vendor. Uh, it's just, it's, it's not a straightforward thing to have this operating system that sits above all these different chipsets because the different chipsets are, are different, Kevin. They, they are. And I think if I were to follow the journey of where we, where we started from, from where we are now, I think what ended up happening is that it, it, was really, it was really hot when it first came out. We had all this, oh, it can be, it's amazing. It's going to transform data center and enterprise and service provider. And the whole world is going to be remade in the white box you know, image. And, it, and it, it did kind of get there. It just did it quietly because enterprise moved on to the next hype cycle. And yeah. to some degree, data center did. But service provider... Because of the way that they they budget for the way that they build the network, you know, the fundamental difference between the two is in enterprise and data center, I'm usually selling a service or a widget that the network supports that to exist to sell that widget, whatever it is. In the service provider, the network is the widget you're selling. So if I can make the widget cheaper, then I've I've got a compelling reason to maybe go pursue technology that at first glance might be a little bit harder to integrate. So that's what happened. And because service provider doesn't get the same kind of like hype cycles, you know, that enterprise does, we didn't hear a lot about it. So what happened is the first round of white box went through the service providers and I'll include cloud in there because they definitely had their, you know, their work with it. They still use it. It's still very, very uh, common. CDNs use it. You know, it's really, really, I remember Netflix was really vocal about four or five years ago. Hey, we kicked all the major vendors out. We're all white box in our peering edge and transport. And I don't know if they still are. They made a big deal about it a few years back. And so all these people that had a reason that were selling their network to go do it and figure it out, they did. And they worked with the chip manufacturers to say, hey, these are some of the shortcomings that we see. If I still, if I go buy this big box from Cisco or Juniper, I can do this and I still can't do this. And so in the last 10 years, we've started to see the feature sets and the and what you can do in Merchant Silicon really close the gap of what is there in that you know shiny gold-plated super secret ASIC from the vendors. And so not to say that they're totally there, but what's what's changed here is, in addition to the last two years, which has been a crazy world for everybody, and allowed some things to happen that might have not have otherwise happened, the feature gaps of the chips and the software got a lot closer than they were 10 years ago. And it feels like there's been some coalescing around how you do white box, what the abstraction layers are. Sonic, for example, seems to have gotten a lot of uh, adoption. And so maybe it's a little a little more mature of an ecosystem now, Kevin? I think it is. I think all of the elements around the ecosystem have have started to look and feel like what we're used to. I, you know, we 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 work with VARs. I know VARs that are generally more on the, they're more on the hardware side. They do do some consulting, but most of them are there uh, to sell boxes because in the service provider world, we consume VARs a little bit differently because you usually have so many vendors that you're 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 stitching together that you're usually not going to them and say, hey, give me your latest validated design like you do when you're building an enterprise network. And you know, Cisco is more than happy to provide, or Juniper, whoever. And in the service provider world, you generally know what you want to build. You just say, hey, I need these features. I need this box. What do you got? And you know, they open the trench coat and show you all the shiny routers that they've got and what's there. And that's the way it works in the service provider world. So trying to sell to enterprise and data center, it took a while to kind of understand what was needed to be able to make that sale. And I won't say that we're totally there on that side, but if you want that that feel of, I want to talk to a VAR, I want to understand how I'm going to use this, I want to understand what hardware should I buy, what software should I use, and then who am I going to call? Whose throat am I going to choke when this thing doesn't work the way I want it to? 
that experience is way more like a traditional vendor nowadays than it was a decade ago. So that part of it is absolutely mature. Well, it feels like we're having a, a, almost two different conversations in a way if we're like a white box vendor trying to trying to pitch this whole idea. Um, maybe a VAR trying to pitch the white box. I don't know the white box has a it's a vendor that's out there, you know, pitching the thing. But but on the one hand, we're saying uh, I need my white box networking solution to do the same thing that the vertically integrated solutions I've been buying for decades does. So I need to have feature parity, and basically I need it to do the same thing, only cheaper. And so that expense uh, cost would be the big driver. But you're also saying that you know features themselves and op- maybe operational model is driving some of white box adoption too. I, I certainly think that's part of it. So in, an interesting little side uh, detour here. I, I did a podcast with Russ White recently where we talked about this idea uh, of separation of network functions. And the idea was generally around this concept that it's really common when we build networks that, you know, um, I know you've never been stuck, Ethan, with a budget saying, I want this and I know I need this, but here's the amount of budget you have. <laughs> it's like, I need 10 6500s, but I'm only going to give you six, right? And right. so you get in this like, okay, I have two thirds of what I need to build a network. So what do I do? You start turning features on in your switches and you make it work, right? That's what yeah. we do. And yeah. so we talked about this idea that if I was freed from the constraint of always getting like, you know, of always getting not exactly what I needed in my in my budget so that I could build the network that I needed, that I could build a better network. And that I didn't care as much about I need every single corner case feature. If I have these mainstream features in like you know, routing, switching, overlays, automation. If I have these basic elements that I know that I need to run a network in 2022 and I can build the network that I want, even if it doesn't have the nice shiny vendor badge on it, and I know that I'm going to get exactly what I want instead of two-thirds of what I want or half or whatever it is, I could probably build a better network because I'm not, you know, I'm not making design compromises then. I'm building exactly what's needed. And so we explored that idea that not being having a cheaper alternative, even though it's, you know, it works really well and stable. We use it in critical networks that carry you know, traffic for, you know, 911 and, you know, carrier services and the entire internet, you know, around areas that we put this out in. I mean, this is, you know, carrying super critical infrastructure. And so that's why, you know, I have no reservations in saying an enterprise and data center, we can absolutely use it. It's just changing the mindset of how do I, how do I consume this and how do I build networks and not being maybe as shackled to this idea of I've got to have a validated design in front of me to be able to consume this. And growing the engineering department a little bit to say, okay, what am I trying to build? What are my requirements? And can I assemble a few different pieces? And not to skip too far ahead of where you may want to be going, but the, the pandemic and the chip shortage has started to force that a little bit in the way that we're building these and the way that people are thinking about white box. That is, if I want to build a network I, and I can't tolerate a multi-month or even more than a year lead time, maybe I'll go white box because there's supply there? Exactly. I mean, it gets when you get to, I mean, I don't know what you're seeing, but I know when I look at the projects that I'm on that involve the mainstream vendors like Cisco, Juniper, Nokia, and Arista, they all got hit by the same things. Arista probably not quite as much because they they rely pretty heavily on the commodity chipsets, the same as white box. They're just a different kind of a of a play. But when you think about that chassis, you think let's go back to 2019 before this all started. And I need a, a chassis that's going to occupy a half of a rack, right? It's like, oh, we can have that to you in six weeks because we're going to do just-in-time inventory. It's going to be manufactured in you know, Taiwan or Mexico or wherever. You know, Cisco and Juniper had their operations. And in the 2019 world, that worked exceptionally well. We got stuff generally you know, in the time frame that we needed. But the minute the global supply chain got like torn apart, that became the worst model in the world to try to build a network with because we're even now, what are we, two years into this? And I'm still getting 
six month timelines, year timelines, year and a half timelines on being able to get gear because it put everybody in such a bind that there was a run on the market. Whereas you look at where white box was and all the ODMs that make these switches, you know, vendors um, like Edgecore and Ufi Space and like Dell's in there, Penguin. And if I forgot anybody, don't kill me. There's like 10 of them out there. But there's other ODM vendors that all had these warehouses full of stuff and these operating systems that we could put on top of it. And as it became clearer that this was not going to solve itself overnight, it, it, the conversation changed from, you know, what are we comfortable doing? And this is what it's got to be to like, I need a box that can sling packets and, and pings because I can't run the business anymore. And so a lot of what I consider some artificial reasons for not, you know, getting out of that vendor lock-in and getting into some other ideas of how you build a network disappeared because, you know, the practical nature took over of the business still has to move forward, whether it's my ideal choice or not. Okay, so just practically speaking, if I want to get some product and get it quickly so I can do uh, my project, uh, Whitebox is a, a possibility here. We mentioned cost as well. Uh, if I want, we were talking before the show that if uh, we, we hit the record button there, Kevin, that if I want to buy, say, uh, 100 gig from Cisco in an ASR chassis, that's going to be, that might be a million dollar. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be like, mostly if I'm in an ASR 9K, you know, but generally, obviously, there's all kinds of discounts and things that skew this. But if I look at the average service provider that we work for, which are going to be your regional telcos, your ILEX and CLEX, your WISPs, your you know, people that are building fiber, uh, these big fiber ISPs that have grant money, all these different kinds of regional service providers, which is where I spend most of my time. And they go to Cisco or they go to Juniper and they go to whoever and say, I need a hundred gig port that does MPLS and I want to do segment routing and I want to do ISIS and I want to do this deep shaping and all these things that we do all day long in SP land. I'm going to be in for a half million, million, something in the six figure budget at, at a minimum to be able to mm. do those things for the most part. Whereas... I, you know, without getting into, you know, specific, you know, figures, you know, I'm, I'm easily south of like 50 grand, like in white box for like most builds of that, sometimes even well below that. So it depends on the box. It depends on the ports, but you're talking about like, like 10% or less of like what the cost is to deliver the same kind of service. And so what we found is a lot of times where we really needed those solutions, and this is speaking a few years ago, because we started to close that gap a lot is in the edges of the network and in the aggregation of the network. So, okay, I'm going to go put out a Cisco ASR to be my, my peering router because I need something to take millions of routes and do all these complex functions and white boxes, maybe not there yet. And that was where we were, you know, three or four years ago. Or I want to do these, the, the, uh, a BRAS or BNG, where I do subscriber aggregation and shaping and radius, like all these really complex things. That was, you know, harder to do. It was possible, but it was, was not as easy to do. And so we'd build the transport Though I say, hey, I need 100 gig, I need 400 gig, I need 10 gig, whatever, and I need MPLS, I can go buy a box that's super cheap and go build transport everywhere and then hang the more expensive boxes at the edges. And that's what we started doing in the provider networks is validating that we could go do this and it worked. And it's not to say that we didn't have bugs. We had bugs and we worked through them. But the other really interesting thing we learned through the pandemic is that they got fixed a lot faster like basically the major vendors got slower and white box got better and they were at, at opposing curves because the ecosystem is simpler there aren't that many chips in play it's it's not like i don't i don't have 600 projects i'm managing i have like maybe like 10 or 20 and so the ecosystem for tac got a lot you know got a lot more manageable and as as the demand went up the quality went up because so many people had to have it that all these outlying things of like, hey, I'm going to slam these 20 features together. 
and this one little thing breaks because I slammed 20 features together. Those kinds of exercises are, are happening so often that the code is just getting really, really good. And so that's the other thing that happened is tech got better, code got better. Whereas we're still like, I know, you know, some, some vendors, um, you know, I've heard some horror stories out of really all the tax, but I've, I've heard the most out of Cisco and Palo Alto recently of, hey, I'm really, really struggling to get this thing that you've sold me. And to be fair, it's probably not, not every vertical in Cisco tech. It's maybe some of them. Some of them are doing okay because they have such a big company. But it's starting to see like, hey, I've got months of no resolution. This bug hasn't been fixed and it's been months. And so people are publicly starting to beat them up and saying, hey, you told me you were the you told me you were the greatest. You told me it was the best experience, but I'm not quite getting the best experience. And and here is something like white box that clearly it's not going to solve every problem and you know and and do everything. But in the realm of routing and switching and some firewalling and CGNAT gateways and some other use cases, there's a way to bring these boxes in and really get a win and deal with it and build it in an ecosystem that works. And we've seen it um, in certainly in service provider, some in data center. And we're starting to even see it now in enterprise with that and, and coupled with the commodity stuff. The support stuff you just highlighted is counterintuitive to me. Not not the part about, you know, the major vendors, the incumbents, you know, struggling with their tech and their software quality. That's not a new problem. That's been an ongoing problem that does seem to have been getting worse lately. Software quality has been going down a resolution. Oh, we're gonna bump it from tack on up to, you know, developers. And then then you just it's you're parked on it and you just stare at the bug ID and wait for a resolution. And then, of course, you got to you know, go through the headache of getting everything upgraded to implement that bug fix. On the white box side, I would not have expected cohesion around bug fixes and stuff. So there's, there's, there's two things here that come to mind. One is you've got hardware uh, that's you know, potentially one source of a problem and one thing that would need to be addressed. And then you've got you know, software that you've layered on that's from a different vendor, from someone else. So when you say, I'm calling tech and getting bug fixes uh, done and it's happening quickly and the code quality is improving, well, who are you talking about? So in general, in general, um, when you talk about the software vendors, like I'll, I'll use IP Infusion as an example because we work with them a lot. There's a lot of other yeah. software vendors and we can get into litany of who they all are. But because IP Infusion is very, very prominent in the service provider space, we, we talk to them a good bit. And, and, and so we... We'll talk to them. And we've been working with IP Infusion for quite a while now in, in building out service provider networks, going all the way back to like Trident 2 level of Broadcom, you know, way, way back in the past. Mm -hmm. And and what we've noticed is as you know, as they've been on this journey with Broadcom, uh, they started to really understand what is it Broadcom needs. And I'm gonna say Broadcom because there just really aren't there were there was a time where we had Mellanox and we had all these other things out there, and the markets consolidated a little bit in that as we talk about pure white box. Um, so when we talk about pure white box, which I'm going to define as, you know, putting your own OS on there and not commodity. Um, and, and by that's, Broadcom, you actually, that's you, generally you all Broadcom. Mean, yeah. You, you um, pick, pick I think Marvel's got a possibility of getting into that market. I don't know if they will, but they could. Um, but in Broadcom and looking at Broadcom and IP infusion together, um, you know, they've been at this for a while and they've been at it for so many clients. They've, I think really started to figure out, we really know pretty well, like when this is a hardware problem to solve, like I've got a bad switch. Or I have a bug that's ASIC level that I need to to fix because uh, as we as we did this and I tried it too was a great example. It wasn't a great chip for MPLS. We did MPLS on some of it. Juniper flirted with this in their QFXs. They had they had Trident two stuff in their QFXs and and we got it working in a basic fashion. But there were a lot of things that as there were newer chips on the horizon, 
uh, I think Broadcom finally said, you know what, we're just we're going to move on to new stuff. We have new things on the horizon, and that created a little bit of uh, a little bit of chaos at the time in the in the white box world, which this is like uh, 2015, 2016, somewhere in that that neighborhood. But as we paved the way into newer, more capable chips, like getting into Qumran and Qumran 2C and the, the, the later versions of Tomahawk and Jericho and all these things that are out there now, uh, we have all these really capable chips that have been in development. It first went to the big boys. It went to, uh, went to the big telcos. It went to the cloud operators. It went to the mobile providers who have all leveraged them very, very heavily, as well as content delivery networks are another really big one that I know that are, that are leveraging these. Uh, and getting them in there so that when it came time to put them into the smaller operators that want to say, hey, I want to take advantage of being able to buy a you know, 100 gig box for 10% of what I would pay for the big vendors, the ecosystem was pretty mature and the understanding of how to work through those issues uh, has, has been really, really good. So as we've been putting these in, I, I know we put in a few bugs um, that we've been working on and they got resolved really, really quickly, uh, specifically with IP Infusion. And, and that that's worked really really well, and we and we're seeing it way faster than especially when these service providers usually will have Juniper gear or Cisco gear, and they look at how fast those bugs are getting fixed in one realm, but not the other. There's a there's a very clear disparity. So to answer your question, I just think that they understand the relationship, who's responsible for what, and have a have enough experience to really recognize whose problem it is to solve, and then bringing the resellers and the hardware manufacturers into this. It took them a while to understand what they were selling and and how it works. Um, and uh, there's one that we work with, uh, uh, EPS Global. You may have heard of that. We work with them a quite a good bit. Um, and they, I think, really understand how that how that works and how this ecosystem works. And there's other there's certainly other resellers out there that do a great job as well. But this whole white box ecosystem has matured to the point where people get who's responsible for what and when to punt issues and where to punt issues so there isn't a lot of finger pointing, which is, I think, kind of an assumed idea of what white box would be. And it certainly was more of that 10 years ago. Well, with the chipsets being as capable as they are today, uh, are there network features I can build on top of white box that I can't build on top of traditional, shall we call them vertically integrated networks? The answer is, well, yes, it's yes and no. I think the, the same chipsets are available to the manufacturers and they certainly seem to take advantage of it when it's in their best interest. Uh, uh, you know, Juniper and Cisco have both had their uh, flirtations with commodity silicon. They seem to kind of swing in and out of whether or not they want them in there, depending on the, the product line across data center and service provider mostly is where I, where I see it. I would say the clearest example of that would be like Pete 4 and Tofino, which I know you guys have talked about. We've seen it at Field Day that Barefoot built. And that's something that really is more in the white box world of, of being able to build. And I'll give you a great example of like a problem to solve. And now I'm going to put my IPv6 hat on. So I get to get my IPv6 dig in here. CGNAT is insanely expensive. We've had a lot of Twitter threads on, on this recently because people are like, why do we need to move IPv6? There's a lot of chatter. There's a lot of you know eyeballs on it now. We're starting to see a C real... CGNAT is extremely expensive in the context of state. Are you saying that's what you're getting at? The, the, the ecosystem and solutions that are out there, yes, you have to maintain state, but also just the exercise of... Typically, we have to punt that to a CPU in most cases. So generally, CGNAT gateways in the last 10 years have been you know, is giant server with something running on top of it that is a software system that most importantly can do the reporting to track the original source of public IP and private IP so that we can do things like Kalia right. reporting and, you know, say, hey, if somebody does something naughty on the network and you're behind NAT and law enforcement shows up knocking, so I need to know 
expensive had computationally, that. but expensive yeah. practically speaking too. Okay. Exactly. And then the other thing is, is that the um, developers, in order to solve things that invariably are going to come up, like I'm on PlayStation and my buddy and I are trying to, you know, we're trying to play this first person shooter and, 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 and you know, and, 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 and handle this thing and, and beat the bad guy, but our latency is off and we can't connect. And we're not on the same server. Like whatever it is that is NAT is clearly in the way of, because whatever's trying to get stitched together through NAT traversal, is is problematic and so the you know the fix-up protocols that we've dealt with for years and trying to make things like sip and all those things work cleanly through nat there's this constant development effort of making sure that whatever is happening that's traversing nat for real-time protocols gaming media video whatever it is that those go through cleanly and there's a lot of babysitting that goes there it's it's probably one of the reasons that the the ipv6 world is so hyper you know, hypersensitive about NAT is because it does require a lot of care and feeding on the carrier side. And now that we're at these, the the numbers we've been at globally in broadband, uh, I don't know that a lot of people realize it, but like we had to really move some pieces around the global board on the internet for like just the backbone of the internet for the world when the pandemic started, because Europe started getting like packet loss. Like they started having peering challenges because they're built very differently than the US for power reasons. And so when you have to maintain these expensive CGNAT gateways as part of that throughput solution, like it's a real like we don't have enough bandwidth problem to solve. So carriers are always trying to like push that out and figure that out. And where Whitebox comes into play is that instead of the super expensive x86 server and software stack, something like P4 with Tofino, people have started messing around with, hey, I could put a terabit of NAT into silicon. And then I can develop an ecosystem of software around that. So if I can suddenly put terabits of CG NAT into silicon and offload that until the point that you know we're in this magical land of unicorn land of IPv6 forever and only IPv6, which who knows when that'll be, but hopefully soon. But I still have to deal with NAT. I still have dual stack networks, even if it's just facing the customers, even if I'm single stack IPv6 in the core. And I've got to deal with that. And that's really expensive. And so Whitebox solves that far better than anything else because the ecosystem is a little bit more open for development because Broadcom has put the work in to say, okay, you can bring your your operating system and you can do these things and here's the software development kit and here's the abstraction and here's how you do this. And then you have um, and then you have an ability to go do that. And people are working on that problem. IPsec, if I want IPsec um, at terabit speeds, I think that was one of the biggest use cases when we were at Networking Field Day and they were showing off P4, which was going into, I think, an edge core white box switch at the time, um, they were saying that if I could compile this, I could do possibly a, a terabit of IPsec. So as you look at those solutions and you look at the things that are possible with having the development tools like Sonic, Sonic's a great example. Sonic is something that a lot of people have used to try and build solutions out of. And um, and then it's it's kind of meandered into a different path now. But it's there. Or I think Switch D is another initiative in Linux that you can use to bring put a Linux OS on and access an ASIC. There's people working on Switch D and Linux to be able to use Linux as just an OS, like we did with Cumulus Linux in a way. So all these tools are out there to take it if you need to take it and make it something that is either uh, prohibitively expensive in a mainstream vendor or the solution just doesn't exist. Let's pause the podcast for a quick word from sponsor IT Pro TV. In my career, certification is how I kept improving my job situation and compensation, and IT Pro TV offers training to help you do the same. There are a couple of strategies that you can take with certs. You can skill up in an IT niche that you really like. For example, maybe networking is your thing. Okay, start with associate level certs, and then you go deeper with professional level. Another strategy is to widen your skill set. 
Maybe you've not done much with security, but you're interested. Great. Take some cybersecurity courses and start passing cert exams, which makes a lot of sense as there's a big industry need for security professionals right now. Whatever direction you want to go. IT Pro TV's rich library of training material has you covered, offering instruction from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training taught by hosts who go out of their way to make it interesting. The course library is well-organized, and you can watch whatever you want on whatever device you have handy whenever you like. So whether you're starting out or skilling up, you can learn IT, pass your certs, and make your first or next career move with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers for 30% off all plans. Use promo code packetpushers at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout. And one more time, itpro.tv slash packetpushers. Use that promo code packetpushers at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now let's return to today's episode. So we should dive a bit more into this issue that white boxes, I can run whatever NOS I want on the hardware. Okay. That gives me some capabilities. It gives me uh, some control over my budget potentially, but it's not as simple as that, you know, Kevin. Uh, so can you explain the, the current realities? It's been changing. Would you explain the current reality of mixing and matching hardware and NOSes today? Sure. So on the hardware side, it's pretty simple because the, the software vendors do a pretty good job when you're dealing with the commercially available solutions. So we're talking about companies like IP Infusion, Arcus, PKA, DriveNets, and there's probably a few others that I'm forgetting that I know are in the game, but there's others out there. There's, and those you know, NOSes, are, like that you just mentioned, Infusion, Arcus, Pika 8, um, DriveNets, and, and right, whoever else, they tend to go after specific markets and they have some calling card. It's an operational model. It's their yes. APIs are great, whatever it is. They've got something that they're going after that is going to make them appealing to you. Exactly. So if I were to unpack those a little bit and look at IP Infusion, they're very, very focused on the service provider and data center market. Uh, that's where they uh, that's where they started. They've been there for uh, a long time. And IP Infusion is slightly different than the others in that they've been writing software for networking stacks for a long time, but it was it, kind of behind the scenes yeah. as we're going to give you our source code for our routing stack. So there's all these networking products out there that run their routing stack and source code uh, and that you might not it's know in it, there and yeah. you didn't know it. And then when Whitebox hit, they're like, oh, we'll do this too, which was a great evolution. Other operating systems seem to have come out of people that were in mainstream vendors. You know, Arcus is a great example. There were mm -hmm. a lot of people at Cisco, I think Juniper, that said, you know what, we, we want to do things differently at, at this operating system. And they had an idea for scale. Arcus's idea was we want to do data center and service provider, but we want to be able to do massive scaling of things like BGP peering. And I want to be able to build like a chassis out of one U, two U switches with you know 100 gig and 400 gig as my backplane. And so that was their, you know, their idea was I'm going to do this hyperscale stuff and give you a solution that is, you know, is far more economical and flexible than if you go buy this big, you know, boat anchor chassis. And so that was their kind of their proposition. And then uh, PK8 was very enterprise focused. Right. It was I want to give you something very similar to what you are going to see and feel in enterprise, uh, but be able to go buy a white box switch and put this OS on there and have a similar experience to, you know, Cisco Enterprise or Aruba Enterprise or whatever that is. And then DriveNet seems is very focused around cloud cloud automation and 5G. Most of those OSs are around those. Um, 5G and cloud are you know very tightly tied together because it's generally built and designed to be cloud native, even if it's not public cloud. They have you know private clouds that help power the 5G ecosystem. So a lot of DriveNets, from what I've 
scene is very much around 5G and cloud. And so the others, like you said, they all kind of have their focus of where we have this operating system, we have an ecosystem of, of software products and maybe some automation products, which they're all starting to kind of generate now. Um, I think all of the companies I mentioned have all been building automation suites that work with other tools like Ansible and all the other stuff that we normally use so that you have a little bit of a software ecosystem around white box now too, rather than here's an OS, go buy a box. So all of those have have built these uh, these different plays in the different markets that they're trying to sell to. And that's this, that's the space from the commercial perspective. There's also the open source perspective, which is a little bit more murky because generally the minute something gets successful in the open source space, it gets snapped up and acquired and then the development stops, which is I think what happened with Sonic. I haven't followed Sonic as closely. I know people that are working on it and then it was it was heavily developed up until i think december of last year and then there was uh, i don't remember the exact acquisition or what happened on the business side but the development kind of stopped and so sonic is it has a lot of potential in at least the state that it was in to go build things and it was open source you could go buy a switch off ebay if you wanted to download sonic for free it was open source and go build yourself a a BGP peering box or a, you know, MPLS PE mm-hmm. or whatever you wanted, very, very low cost. And Switch D and Linux, even though I'm not super familiar with it, I've kind of followed it in very cursory level, is this package in Linux that provides that layer of abstraction so that you don't need to know what the ASIC is doing, which is where all the NDAs and the super secret sauce is. But it provides this layer of abstraction to still do hardware forwarding with Linux and take advantage of an ASIC. And so I see a fair amount of activity on that. So there's a possibility that flavors of Linux that leverage that could come into play and start, you could start just like we do in the server world, you could start using Linux. I'm certainly not the authority on that because it's not my area. I've just kind of followed it because I'm in the white box commercial space. There's probably people better, uh, you know, better suited than me to comment on that. But that's one thing I see that's in development. It's active. It's out there. But switch D is again, you described it as an abstraction layer. So what I run free range routing on top of it, something like that. I think you can. That's what happened in yeah. Sonic. If memory serves, yeah. Sonic was able to leverage something like free range routing to be the routing stack and push that down into the into the ASIC. And I believe Switch D is doing something similar is that you would bring bird or free range routing. And then the next hops of those routes would come out of the rib and get pushed down into, you know, what would be your stuff table in a Cisco switch uh, and fib so that you have the tie in between the ASIC and the rib. We'd be remiss not to mention Cumulus Linux here. Um, they were acquired by Mellanox, who was acquired by NVIDIA. But uh, boy, I don't hear much out of those folks these days. No, it's it's really interesting. I did a few Cumulus Linux deployments that were great back in the days of when Broadcom and Mellanox were both equally uh, available. And then I think a lot of customers definitely got kind of a bad taste in their mouth after that acquisition. Uh, which is uh, totally understandable. If I was, I'm a business owner. I run a business, so I totally get the the Nvidia side of it and the Cumulus Linux side of it and the business side of it. But when I sit back on the other side of the fence as a network engineer and I look at it, it was it was a harder proposition because if that you know change happens and I suddenly because I think we got uh, notices that Broadcom gear wasn't going to be supported because obviously nvidia owned the rights to melanox yeah. they owned melanox so they had all the intellectual yes. property yep. and secrets but by acquiring cumulus linux they had access to ip from broadcom and that created a irreconcilable differences between the I, I actually, manufacturers I remember that release coming out from cumulus linux now that you yeah. said yep this is the last version we're going to be supporting broadcom and i went oh oh yeah of course that's how else could it be oh that sucks though yeah so yeah, it kind of saw it was it was something they had to do, and I totally understand the stuff, but it sucked for all the customers. So I think, I mean, 
Keynote Linux is, I'm sure, in whatever they're doing and the solutions that they're building, they have a great OS. And Mellanox makes good chips, so I'm sure where they're getting sold and used, that they're doing well. But in the traditional white box space, they're they're kind of not in that anymore, in a sense, because they've kind of morphed into a more vertically integrated solution because it's got to be uh, these things. Now that may not be totally fair because we may be able to use different ODMs uh, still of Mellanox, but I, I just haven't worked with Cumulus Linux enough to know where they are now. I just know that the people that I work for that were asking for Cumulus and wanted Cumulus have, have steered away from it because of the direction that they're going. So it's, uh, which seems to sit somewhere between a Cisco and a, a Cisco and an Arista and in, in some measure of that, a vertically integrated solution. I don't know quite what it is yet, but to be fair, I don't follow it that closely anymore. Now, uh, Microtech, we, you and I, last time that we recorded, we talked a lot about Microtech and their ecosystem. They are not a white box provider at this point, correct? No, they're definitely a commodity provider and vendor. You know, one of the few out there, like uh, Ubiquity would be another one in the commodity space that we talked about. Yeah. But they, to date, are more interested in building vertically integrated solutions that are very, very low cost. So I don't think, you certainly can, if you want to go hack into the uh, hack into the ASIC, you can definitely go load Linux on it. There's a group of people out there that kind of hack away at it as a hobby. But from a, a production version of it, Microtik has got a Linux-based operating system that is is one of the few out there that actually has its own routing stack. There's not that many out there where they have their own routing stack that doesn't come from somebody else, uh, like Juniper and Cisco and Nokia and what have you. But Microtik is one of those. They do have their own routing stack that they've developed, and that's what you're going to run on it. And the way I usually describe those is commodity, you know, commodity versus yeah. white box. Now, going back to the issue of support, if I'm an IP Infusion customer, I don't, you know, and I'm running that on a Broadcom platform, I don't have a relationship with Broadcom. I have a relationship with IP Infusion, and I rely on IP Infusion to go to Broadcom if it happens to be some kind of a hardware-related issue, right? Exactly. And typically, you'll get some support from whoever the hardware reseller is uh, in this case. So you'll usually, if there's anything, IP Infusion, because they understand the hardware and they understand what Broadcom chips and the ODMs that we're using to say, okay, this is a this is something that we need to go look at on the software side, or this is config. You just need to put this config in, just like if you were to open a ticket with with Juniper TAC or, or Cisco TAC or whoever it is. And then if it's a problem with the hardware, it needs to go back to uh, go back to the reseller to say, okay, maybe we got a bad box and we need to do an RMA. Then they're going to come back and say, clearly we have the data that says this is a bad box, and you guys can go through the RMA cycle and go do that. But the other nice thing about that is the boxes are so inexpensive compared to the traditional approach. I, I'm not I'm not dependent on the four hour replacement so that I can get a, you know, I can get a yeah, special you, 747 flying my switches at the last minute that I need or whatever surprise. it is. Yeah, I just keep cold spares wherever it is relevant for, for what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and that may not work for every organization. There's certainly, when you have a lot of remote sites, there's that that nice thing about having the four hour replacement. But again, to go back to another, you know, as far as the idea that's being sold and how it's being executed, there have been a lot more SLA violations on that kind of a thing in the mainstream vendors just because of the supply shortage. Because yeah. yes, I was yes, you're right. I was supposed to have this to you in four hours, but I'll have it to you in four weeks or whatever it is, because there's just not as much supply of that stuff. And certainly even harbor replacement has been affected. And I think that's important to mention because it affects the the reasons that people usually decide between I'm going to go with Cisco, I'm going to go with Juniper, I'm going to go with Arista versus I'm going to go with Whitebox. I feel like a lot of those reasons that I would have heard in 2019 were stripping some of those things away of I'm getting this premier experience and maybe the experience has not been as premier lately. And so it's a little easier for me to think about maybe I should do this. 
And I think that's that, that's one of the most important things that's it's illustrated to me is that people are opening up to that. And when they get into the ecosystem of support, it's not that different. Uh, even though the hardware is from somebody else, you open a TAC ticket, you work it with the engineer, we figure out whose responsibility it is to fix the code, give you the right, right config because you, the operator, did something wrong or go to the reseller because the box is bad and it's, it's really not any more complicated than that. Now, does this open up the gray market, like like buying stuff off eBay? If I go buy a white box off eBay and throw IP infusion on it, is that okay? Or should yeah, there be? Yeah, you can do yeah. that all day long because they they don't. It doesn't really matter to the software vendor anymore where you got the box, unless there's some defect with the box because it got um, drug hide when they get had ports smashed in on it, and we still we still managed to get it working even though it had half the ports smashed in on it because somebody didn't pack it well. Um, it, it is not, it's not a big deal if you want to go buy it. And I'll tell you where that's become really relevant is that as people have, have committed to these deals and then had to back out of them because of all this grant money that's going around in the service broader space here in the U S right now, there have been times where big orders of these things either got purchased and then had to get resold on the gray market through eBay or a third party hardware reefer reseller, whatever it is. And they would say, okay, I, I, I have enough to get. 30 of this kind of switch, but I need 10 more. And you can just fill in from wherever the ecosystem will let you, even if that's another ISP that happens to have 10 boxes, even though they may have been booted and consoled into, so they're like lightly used. But the the OS manufacturers don't care. You just put the right license on it, get the right code on it, and it is it doesn't matter. Whereas, I don't know if you've ever been through the recertification process with Cisco or Juniper from getting something on eBay and trying to get it under support. It's doable, but it's, it's a lot it, of work. It, it was enough trouble back when I was dealing with that to, to not bother. Um, yeah. We also had challenges with resellers that would sell us something that supposedly was new in box and legit and was actually not. It fell off of a truck somewhere um, and was just <laughs> okay. problematic to get support on. They're yeah. like, we don't recognize that serial number or we show that serial number as belonging to X company in Europe. Why do you have it? Uh, I, I ended up with a Cogent 7600, Cisco 7600, exactly like that. <laughs> And I called TAC and they were like, oh, this is coach. This is like, no, no, no. We just bought this. They're like, no, actually you didn't. Actually you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, there's, there was a recertification process, but it was always painful and just more of a headache than you know, we wanted to deal with for sure. All right, Kevin. Now, a lot of the applications and use cases we've talked about for white box here have been in the context of service providers. Now you, you also said that there are, you know, yeah, the enterprise could be open up to this. So who do you think is the right user of white box at this point? Who should stay away? Sort of this feels like the early days of Linux to me, where it was kind of a tinkerer's tool. If you could get it going, get that Slackware OS distro loaded and then admin it. Great. Other than that, don't look for help. Yeah, so that that's a great question because I think as we look at the enterprise space and you look at how it's morphed, I think one of the biggest drivers, one of the biggest things that has opened the door for white box, in addition to all the other things we mentioned of supply chain uh, shortage and maturing of it, has been this massive automation push that turned network engineers into you know into kind of a part time. I'm moonlighting as a coder now, right? right? And we're going from you know you think of the world that you and I came from because we've been in network engineering a while where it was. I'm a CLI jockey and that's what I do and I'm not a coder, right? And now we're in this world where I need to know a little Python. I need to know a little Linux. I need to think a little bit like a software engineer, even though I'm not going to be a software engineer. And I think that that push into tools that are neutral into Linux instead of always going into, I need this vendor tool. I need this thing. I'm just going to go into Python or I'm going to Ansible to do this has started to develop skill sets that make it easier on the enterprise side to consume something like that because 
it's not like you're just like, oh, I, I sit in the Cisco CLI every day. I know how to conf T, but you're putting this thing in front of me that I don't know what commands I'm supposed to run and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I think stretching the skill sets out from in network automation and the big push that we're seeing is, is part of it. And I also think that as we're getting more open about how we build networks and going to cloud, uh, and you look at a lot of people are going to cloud, some people are coming back from cloud with the, with the energy crisis. I just I see a little bit more openness of, of enterprise shops to bringing these things into, into their world. And so I think the verticals that I see are, are great for like retail. It's a great example. Margins are really, really slim. They were not great back in like when I was, I worked in retail enterprise. That's one market segment that I know really, really well. It was always really hard to justify the cost of putting this really expensive box in. And we always looked for alternatives to, I'm going to go put this, this Cisco 3900 branch router in that I'm going to drop 11 grand on. And then I'm going to, I've got five years of ROI to pay that sucker off, right? When all I'm dropping in is two megs or three megs at the time, you know, maybe it's 50 megs now, but. The point is when you have a lot of branches and you're a branch heavy site like a retail organization is, it's really, really hard to cost justify all that. And then you look at where we are in you know the economic state of the world and where we are with timelines of I may not even get the box for a year. Again, going back to you start broadening your horizons on what can I do? And so I've I've noticed that enterprises have gotten a lot more creative about what am I open to? What can I consume? What's right for me? And they're broadening their horizons. So if I if I look at it through that lens, then I, I think that those shops that have made that realization that I can go into other things and make it successful, and it doesn't have to be all one vendor, are the perfect fit. Whether it doesn't matter if it's the retail vertical or you're in the banking vertical or whatever vertical that you're in, the people that have started to make that shift by out of necessity are a great fit for considering white box. And that's not to say that white box is going to solve every problem or it's going to do everything and you're going to kick your old vendor out. That's probably not the case, but it certainly is a great tool to have in the bag when you want to be able to build the right network and, and fit that in the budget like we talked about. And, and that's on looking at the kind of the WAN side and the branch side and all of that. But if I look in the data center, I'll tell you a really clear example of where I think in the enterprise DC that white box fits really, really well is as we morphed out of the, the old world that we came from, which is I'm going to put a 6500 in the data center and trunk all my switches in and home run my switches. And then we went into VXLAN and Leaf Spine and the Nexus 2K, 5K, 7K world that was a wonderful, joyous adventure that we all went through. And now we're in this, <laughs> this Leaf Spine world that is most everybody has adopted. And it doesn't really matter if you're VXLAN or you're Geneve. Everybody kind of understands what, what Leaf Spine is as a network architecture, even if it's a small data center footprint or it's a hyperscaler. The challenge that you have is still in a lot of the vendor ecosystems that are mainstream, and I'll, I'll beat up on Cisco a little bit, is that there are still these big chassis that I, oh, I'm going to build my, my super spine here, and I'm going to build this massive Nexus chassis that's dense with 100 gig or 400 gig or whatever it is, and then I'm going to hang these big leaves off that have all these ports. And oh, by the way, I'm going to go put this UCS chassis behind it that has 900 different cards that I'm going to slam into it. And suddenly, what was supposed to be this elegant, more simplistic network design has gotten really, really hard because we've crossed it with a lot of chassis architecture. And so one of the things that I see that is definitely freeing about white boxes, I have simple, I have simple components that have a lot of feature sets, but it's not chassis based by and large. There's, I don't, there's maybe one chassis in white box that I know of that was like Facebook specific that they did because they were trying to solve a hyperscaler problem. But if I'm just trying to light up your average 
DC for the Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 or whoever it is where I'm not going to have this massive hyperscaler network. I can go build a pretty simple spine layer and a leaf layer and I can turn on EVPN and VXLAN or MPLS if that's what I want as my data plane and just go hang servers off of it. And I don't need to hang these really expensive UCS chassis. I can just go buy servers from Supermicro or Dell or whoever and, and go figure out what my software stack is going to be and for again, for a fraction of the price, I can build the right network instead of building this monstrosity that, oh, by the way, you need $3 million with the software if you want to have a prayer of managing this system. So it doesn't take long to look at the pricing of the software and the big chassis in that world, and you know, the enterprise data center, whether it's campus or a true data center, to see that, hey, I can get some developers in here, even if I get consultants and get my team to put in a simpler leaf spine network and my and my and my servers and and build a simpler network that I can that I'm not chained to anybody's ideas of how it should be. And I don't think I think that's never been more clear than the last two years that we've been in, where everybody said, "I'm all in with you, Cisco," or "I'm all in with you, Juniper," or "I'm all in with you, Arista," only to get into this global condition that nobody could control. So it certainly wasn't their fault. But the organizations were like. I, I can only consume it this way. And now you're telling me I can't buy anything new for a year or two years. And for a business, that's a horrible position to be in because you can't do anything. And so I think that is the other promise of white box that we talked about a long, long time ago. Um, and I remember I hear I heard Russ White harping about over and over a long time ago, which was I can kind of pick my own destiny a little bit more if I assemble the components on my own. I know what I want to bolt in for automation. I know what I want to bolt in for the hardware and the software. And I can be a little bit more in charge of my own destiny so that when the world gets disrupted, I don't need to buy a switch from this manufacturer because I can buy the same Broadcom ASIC from this person over here. And I don't care if 30 of the boxes have the Edge Core label on it and 20 of the boxes have the Eufy space or the Dell logo on it. It's all the same stuff underneath, just like a server, because it met my specs. And that's a very liberating world to be in when you're operating a network under adverse conditions like where we've been with the, the, chip, short, the chip shortage. So let's say I'm a network engineer, Kevin, and all of that that you just told me, just you just sold me, Kevin. I'm ready. I'm ready to give White Box a try. Let's say, I, but I have not started this before. What do I need to understand? Is it simple that I go buy a switch, load a NOS that's going to work with that hardware, then go for it? Or is there something more structured? It's really pretty easy. The first time I had to go load these things on, when I was doing the early work, I didn't have to really touch the loading of the OS a whole lot because we were getting it. Sometimes they were preloaded. Sometimes the the customers that we were working with were already have them loaded. So a lot of time I was just getting in the CLI and getting familiar with the commands and building the network. And then I did some on-site work where I had to go load these things. And ONI, if you're not familiar with ONI, is Open Network Integration Environment, if I remember the acronym correctly, is kind of this open standard that is it's really just a bootloader, a grub bootloader in Linux that is, okay, I have this OS. What OS do you want me to use? It's been around a And it's been formalized time. and yeah. standardized so that you can load whatever OS you want on the switch. And so it's this... Uh, you know, it's this ASCII screen with some up arrows and down arrows of pick your put your flash drive in, you put your OS on there, you download your OS, or you could connect it to TFTP server, SCP, or uh, any of that stuff, just like you would any other switch if you're trying to do ZTP provisioning. And I'm just going to load an OS. So I'm going to go select the file, follow a few steps of, you know, you may have to unpack it, like use tar and Linux to, to unpack it, but it's really not a lot of steps. So if you've ever installed Linux, if you've ever installed Windows on a PC, I have no doubt that you can install Whitebox on a Switch. The constructions are very clear. Yeah, every now, every now and then they hiccup, just like an OS install does. And you can go out to the vendor and say, hey, 
what's going on. I had one one time where like the flash was corrupted and I did I had I, I talked to Edgecore and they were actually really good. They were like, here, try this flash, try this. They even sent me like a chip once. They were like, we think your flash may be corrupt. We're just gonna send you a chip. So they sent me a new flash to go snap in to to try it and and something didn't work and they ended up RMAing my uh my switches and they were great about it. They it there wasn't um you know there were no issues. They were very helpful. They were very quick. They were very technically detailed and focused because they know their hardware and they knew exactly uh, what they needed but most of the time the just like you would on a pc the os just loads and then the minute you load the os you'll boot up and you'll get a cli which is most of them like ip infusion for example looks like cisco's operating system or the industry standard cli as it were <laughs> uh-huh. um but if you've ever if you've ever done a conf t and kind of do an interface and done you know a switch port uh you know switch port access vlan or, or any of that a switch port mode trunk it's gonna not gonna be terribly foreign to you yeah yeah Going back to our eBay conversation, is there a affordable for the you know home lab person who wants to add a white box switch into their network? Is there something that's you know under a thousand bucks, maybe even under five hundred bucks that I could uh, I could go find? Sure, I think probably the the stuff in the Qumran family is the cheapest. So like the Qumran MX, and I think if memory serves, the AX. I would say probably the most economical because we put this out a lot at uh, sites where we have towers or fiber aggregation points are Eufy space. And they they have kind of embraced this. I want to put together out a really low density uh, model of ports. And so they're you know, new or uh, some of the models they have are just a few thousand dollars, even new. So sometimes you can find them on eBay even cheaper than that. So if you're lucky, the problem is the chip shortage right now makes it hard because everybody, everybody's snapping it up. But if you're lucky, you can sometimes get something for a few hundred bucks that will be compatible with one of those operating systems. And usually if, depending on who you know, you might be able to get a copy of the OS to try out. Uh, or if you're doing it with an organization, you can usually get a demo to go put on there. Or if you're adventurous, you can go play with Switch D or, or Sonic or something like that. But if I look at like Trident 3 chips, Qumran MX and, a- and a- I think AX and CX, the different flavors of it, those are the things that are down on the lower end of port density. And then the lower speeds where we're like 100 gig uplinks, 10 gig, you know, maybe some one gig in there. Uh, you'll see some of that. I think the, the newer Trident uh, Trident stuff is in the, uh, um, is, is in like if you want a PoE switch, they'll put that kind of stuff in there. So those are the kinds of things that I would look at to go if you want to get a switch yourself and start playing with this on eBay. Because we sometimes will go get switches on eBay because we're trying to fill a, an immediate need or we, uh, I got some for my lab off eBay, certainly. So, um, but it's not, you're probably going to have to be bring at least a few hundred bucks to the table if you want to bring yeah. it to your lab to be realistic. Yeah. Do you spell Qumran and Eufy uh, space? It's Q-U-M-R-A-N, if memory serves. And then Eufy mm-hmm. space is U-F-I. I believe there's a dash in the name, space, S-P-A-C-E. And I believe their domain is Eufy space, all one word at there, which I'm sure we can get in the show notes. Got it. Okay. Thank you very much for those recommendations. I'm going to have to poke around. I saw some uh, some used Dell switches out there that said they came with Oni. And I was like, ooh, what chips are in there? Because I guess part of the issue would you need to make sure that whatever the chipset is, is supported by the NOS that you want to play around with. Absolutely. And Dell, we used we did a lot with Dell. And I, I, I've done more with Edgecore and Eufy Space recently. When we first got into Whitebox, we did a ton with Dell. The 4048 model was a Trident 2 model. You could run IP Infusion on it. I think you still can for just their data center build. And you used to be able to do MPLS on it. And then we moved into, I believe it's the 4248. So that like that would be a good model if you want to go try Qumran out, Qumran MX, and go turn on all the fun MPLS bells and whistles. Mm. 
you can do it in a 4248, which uh, used to be uh, you could sometimes you could get them for under a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred bucks or two thousand bucks, something like that on eBay and be able to go build a, an MPLS network with all kinds of fun things on a, on a pretty cheap box. So that was and then they got into other models. But the Dell was really good about uh, laying out how to do Oni. Uh, and not that the others were bad. They were they were pretty clear. But Dell, they've been in it so long. They had like the beautifully illustrated pictures of exactly what screens you go through for Oni and how to do it. And so that's where I learned Oni was in the Dell 4000 series when I first started working with it. By the time I was working with other manufacturers, I'd learned it well enough that I was you know not able to mess it up. Well, I could probably still mess it up. <laughs> so what about training or certifications related to white box? Is that a thing? There hasn't been as much that's been formal until recently because of the, I don't know if I'm allowed to, to, to release the percentage, but at least in some of the, in some of the work that we've seen with IP infusion, they have certainly announced that the, the growth that they've gone through in the last 10 years, or sorry, the last year or two has been very substantial. And because there's been such a huge surge in growth in sales and people looking at this and using this, it started to spur conversations in training. And to be fair, I've had the same conversations with Arcus. Um, I haven't done a ton of work with Pika 8, so I don't, I don't know them as well. But I've talked to the Arcus folks a good bit. They're doing the same kind of thing. They want training and certification, just like IP Infusion wants training and certification because it's beneficial to their ecosystem, just like Cisco did years and years and years ago. They recognize oh, yeah. that certified folks generally make for a happier customer and a more supported product. So they're definitely looking at adding those because they re- I, think, I think there's a recognition that it's time to get that out there to fit the model that organizations expect with their technical folks as well as the professional development cycle that they need to hit like every other vendor to make sure that you can consume this technology, have people that are trained in this technology and had some confidence other than, oh yes, I know it. I know it very well. I'm an expert. Closing questions, Kevin. I got a couple for you um, that are sure. that are related. One, let's say I want to sell the idea of white box to the business stakeholders in my company. You know, the ones that are very comfortable with their long established Cisco, Juniper, Arista, whatever relationship. How do I sell white box to those folks? So I, the way that I've looked at this has changed a lot because I, I am a business owner. So in addition to being a network engineer, I, I run a global business. And, and so I understand that side a, a little bit better because I've been on that journey for the last 10 years. And so when I, when I look at this and talking to business owners, I, I try to articulate the, the value that they're getting out of being able to deploy exactly what they need and, tr- and transforming their ecosystem and the way that they consume the technology into being requirements-based instead of vendor-based. And, and I think that's... It's very easy to make... It would have been harder to make that point in 2019. They could say, okay, I hear what you're saying. I know that we should be in control of our own ecosystem and that the business is, you know, is, is inheriting some risk by going all in, all my eggs in this one basket. But like, I haven't seen it. Everything's been warm and fuzzy for 20 years. Now everything's not been warm and fuzzy. So it's a lot easier sale now to say, remember how uncomfortable you felt as a business when you weren't able to make any decisions and the amount of risk that suddenly was as accumulated almost overnight in not being able to execute any of your business objectives. And by transforming your operations and your in your enterprise IT lifecycle with your your personnel, the way that you buy these things, and thinking about it a little bit differently and taking a little bit of ownership instead of traditionally enterprises. You know, I worked for an enterprise, you worked for an enterprise. We know how this works. 
is that they they tend to be some of them tend to be meat grinders for network ops personnel and other IT personnel and then consultants come and bail them out and that's the cycle they seem to be on every 2 to 3 to 4 years is this bell curve and enterprises are i think are realizing number 1 retaining talent is a whole different conversation now than than it was and so now that there's a big a big focus on developing and, and retaining internal talent instead of it being the meat grinder that we've seen over the last 20 years you can start to invest in people and processes and say, I want to have a development mindset. I want to have an open mindset in my enterprise and in my shop. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to throw my old vendor away, but it does mean I'm going to be more open to it because I don't want to get caught where I was at the beginning of 2020, not being able to execute any of my business objectives. And I think when you highlight the risk to the business people that they well understood and can identify with that risk now of not having options on how to execute, there's a lot more buy-in in going down that path. And then just the cost avenue, depending on what it is you're trying to sell and what you're trying to execute. I mean, let's let's be real. We're, we're technical nerds. We love BGP. We love MPLS. We love VXL. We love all these technical things. And they're very important to us. But in the grand scheme of things, generally, we can often execute the business and turn a profit for the business in selling whatever widget that is with a solution that may not be perfect, but is good enough and sometimes we get so obsessed with that technical solution that we forget there's a million other things that business has to do to be profitable and stay in business. And IT is, is only one of them. And I think that recognition, that recognition there that we need to be more open in a two-way street with the business in the way that we're, oh, it's got to be a million-dollar Cisco. It's got to be a million-dollar this. It's got to be this solution. Having more of a two-way street with IT about what is really needed and what you can really get by with and not being... Um, uh, super constrictive of what solutions are available, I think makes for a lower risk environment because we're more we're more real about what we really need and what we can get away with versus yeah. I got to have this protocol, man. The world's going to end if I don't have this protocol. Networking is a commodity in, in my view. It's something that we have to have. It's a foundation. It's complicated and there's a huge dependency on the business for the network to be successful. But at the end of the day, we're all building the same networks, more or less, no matter who the vendor is that's there. And so if a business can get a look at a network in that way, that it, it's a commodity, and uh, yes, technical skill, yes, lots of other things and asterisks next to that, you can build it cheaper and it doesn't really matter the brand on the front of it. It matters the result that it's delivering for the business at the end of the day. Exactly. And if you can produce the same result, which that's the key thing, there's often a perception that, oh, it's cheaper, I can't produce the same result. If you can get it into your ecosystem and do a proof of concept and prove which a lot of hands were forced in the last two years to do just that, and you say, oh, guess what? It did produce the same result mm. and it can produce the same result. Once you're at that stage, then the buy-in for the business and the win for IT, and this is if you're on the IT side of this, not the business side, the win is that if you bring money back to the business to say, hey, we saved you this money, but can we use it over here so that we can execute this thing that we've never had budget for? The more of a two-way street you have on being uh, on being a better custodian of the budget and not just always asking for the moon, that eventually will change the dynamic of the business IT relationship where the business is going to buy in more versus just saying, oh, those IT guys are always asking for $50 million for all their toys. And, and I think the, the more open and honest and real conversation you have there where IT is finally coming and saying, hey, you know what? We really could get away with this and it'd be better for the business that it, there's that's going to change the dynamic of the business IT relationship and get more buy-in for things like this on the business side. As you say, it would be IT coming to the business and saying, hey, we could do this other thing um, and we can do it a lot more cheaply. Yep. But 
IT has got to get there first. So let's say you're the, you know, the, the tech lead inside of an IT group and you want to advocate for white box switching. How do you sell it to the engineering and the ops folks that would be impacted by such a decision? So I, I was actually put in this position as a, when I was working before I became a consultant or I was on the verge of becoming a consultant, I was working inside of a Fortune 500 enterprise because I was in this position where I was doing a lot of work with Microtech because I came from the service provider space and then I changed jobs. And I went into a large retail organization that was, you know, global, global enterprise, lots of people, tons of data centers and all these things. It was all uh, Cisco and Fortinet and Palo Alto, a very traditional type of enterprise. And where this, where the need came up was in the guest Wi-Fi. At the time, there was not a great solution for the guest Wi-Fi. It was insanely expensive. I think we were outsourcing it to AT&T or something like that. And it was just like hundreds of dollars for a very low-speed circuit and a managed router. And so somebody said, you know what? This is just killing our budget. Like, we want it there. We want to have guest Wi-Fi in our, in our retail environment. But it's just not that important to us. And, and I had been talking. I, and this is where you have to kind of be a bit of a salesman. Not all engineers are extroverts. But you need to kind of pick your wins when you're in the IT space. And talk about ideas without forcing them down people's throats. Say, hey, maybe it's not the right time for this, but one day maybe we'll consider this. And that's what I did with Microtech specifically and in, in where we were doing it. And one day the stakeholders came to me and said, hey, you know that cheap router you're always talking about? They're like, we may have a use case for that. And, and where it happened was in a non-critical area, which is the easiest way to get it into anywhere if you're not in, you know, and the world is ending. And if you get into a non-critical area and it's successful then you really give yourself uh, a way to pave the way to do the more critical things, which is exactly what happened. After a couple of years of putting out very inexpensive microchip routers as guest Wi-Fi in these remote sites, and we put it out in like, I don't know, six or 700 sites that it was running the guest Wi-Fi. And they just worked because it was super simple uh, type of deal that we were doing. We just needed a local internet circuit and a little bit of management and it was good to go. And so we had a data center build. And I think I actually highlighted this use case at the end of the Microtech show. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to suffer me telling the same story twice, but I think it's, I think it punctuates the point better than anything I, I could come up with, which is we had a we had a bunch of Cisco ASRs ordered. We had like, I don't know, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of Cisco year ordered for a data center that was was behind the timeline. And this is well before we had the chip shortage issues. It's just that year that they were they were weeks behind their timeline. Um, but I was already on site in New York where we were going to build this data center. We didn't have anything. So because we'd already used this commodity element in a low-risk way and it had been successful, I, I said, hey, guys, what if we do this? What if we use these inexpensive routers here to stand the data center up and then we can come bolt in whatever you want? And, and they said, no, no, no. That's, uh, you know, what, what's the risk there? I was like, well, the risk right now is we have vaporware. We have nothing. <laughs> And, you know, we, with this data center is not going to happen. So I was like, where's the bigger risk? The data center not happening or putting the cheap router in there? Like, okay, order the cheap routers. So we did it and we stood the data center up and we brought up, we had like a 4,000 person corporate headquarters. And we had like hundreds of sites aggregating into routers that cost like $1,000 each into this data center because we had a pair for MPLS WAN aggregation. This is a little before the SD WAN days where we're still doing MPLS L3 VPNs pretty heavily. And then we had two transit borders to connect to the internet and peer with our upstreams. Uh, but we brought all that back. We used the routers. They didn't need, we didn't need complex things. We needed BGP, OSPF, a uh, little bit of QoS. And we got all those things together. And then the funny thing is, it ended up working so well that people kind of forgot about it. And mm -hmm. so I started getting these emails from the data center operator saying, hey, you've got these pallets on the loading dock. What do you want to do with this? And so my boss came to me. He's like, what are these emails I keep getting? I was like, ah, it's your half a million dollars with the Cisco gear that we never put in because we have the Microtech routers running that. And so this went on for almost two years. 
And the only reason that we pulled those routers out was because uh, they couldn't be returned and we couldn't recoup the money. So the best part was I got paid to go back up and put the Cisco routers in a second time as a consultant. <laughs> but we we pulled them out, but they did the job. And so I think if I was to, to recap that story, and I've done this, I've rinsed and repeated this idea in a number of different organizations, which is let's get it in a low-risk way. If you're an IT and you want this in your world, introduce it in a, in a way where you're not pushing it down people's throats. Play with it on your own time so that you know what it is, whether it's Microtik or Ubiquity or the latest Linux thing that you've developed, like whatever it is. Know it well enough to know when to insert it into the conversation. And then I'll throw a plug back to you guys and Packet Pushers because I've been with you guys, I think, since the very beginning. And the most important thing that I learned that helped me on my professional journey going from engineer to now business owner running the stuff around the world was as I was listening to you guys, I learned like when to insert it in the organization because me 20 years ago would have been like, if you don't listen to me, the world's going to end and my solution is the best. And, you know, like all engineers. And, and and by listening and understanding the way people were solving these problems of advocating for a specific technology, by listening to you guys, you and Greg over the years, I, I got smart enough on these things to say, you know what, I'm going to buy my time and I get the right moment, get the timing right. And I was able to get a lot of wins in getting these things in. I think that's the key. Timing is everything. Build personal relationships. Make sure people understand why you want it in there. And, and, and you know, and and don't be a technology stickler where it's my way or the highway. Be flexible and realize that, you know, often perfect is the enemy of good in many things that we do. And that's the best way to get these elements into your organization and get a win. So many things to add on, Kevin, that I could say, but uh, we are, we're out of time, man. There's a, we've, we've already run a bit long, I think. So <laughs> Kevin, how can people follow you on the internet? So if you want to find me on the internet, you can get me, I'm at Stubarea51 on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me at my company page, which is iparchitects.com, which is I-P-A-R-C-H-I-T-E-C-H-S.com. And I think that's pretty much it. Definitely find me in one of those three places. Thank you very much for showing up again, Kevin. This was great. Appreciate your time. As I know, uh, as we were talking before the show, you're you're a busy man. You were very busy. Now, if you're listening to the show and you heard us refer to this Microtech show that Kevin was on before, that is episode 634 of Heavy Networking, published in June 2022. You can uh, scroll back and find that and give that a listen and learn all about the world of Microtech if, you're, if that's a brand you're not familiar with in the networking space. And thank you for listening to this conversation we had about white box switching today. And maybe you've heard this and you think white box is kind of crazy. You just never, ever do it because of support or your comfort level with your incumbent vendor, whatever it is. Ask yourself this question. What has your vendor done for you lately? And maybe they are amazing. And if so, that's great. But if perhaps it's time for a change, it could be that white box is a valid way forward for you. And if you're not sure and you want to talk to some other folks like Kevin who have experience with Whitebox, you could give the free Packet Pushers Slack group a try. Get your Slack invite via packetpushers.net slash Slack and then go for it. There's over 2,250 engineers hanging in the general channel. And maybe your company's just way too old school to even consider Whitebox. Well, you could check out our jobs channel there in Slack. Folks are posting career opportunities there fairly often. The Packet Pushers Slack group, again, it's 100% free. We provide it as a community service. There's no dark patterns or privacy abuse to be afraid of. I and have I'm been in that one, by the way. I'm in your what? Slack group. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we do see you in there from time to time chatting people up about stuff. I've been Ethan Banks. You can ping me on Slack or on the Twitters at EC Banks, where my DMs are open. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>